1: The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Brooke Masters, Chief Regulation Correspondent, Jennifer Thompson, Retail Banking Correspondent, and Daniel Schaefer, Investment Banking Correspondent. This week, we'll discuss small banks' claims of a glass ceiling as regulations hand an advantage to larger competitors in the UK. We'll take a look at RBS becoming the third bank to settle in the ongoing LIBOR scandal. And we'll take a look at Barclays, planning to cut at least £2 billion from its annual cost base. Finally, we'll take a round-up of the latest results from leading European banks. First, though, Brooke and Jennifer, to that topic of UK small banks. They're rounding, basically, on the UK, EU and Basel III regulations all together, saying that they've, in combination, imposed a glass ceiling that kind of works against what the government's trying to affect in terms of bringing small banks, greater competition into this market.
0: Essentially, this is the flip side of the long-running story about how big banks reduce their capital requirements by using models. Little banks don't have models because either because they, they can't d-
1: afford to do them.
0: Well, they either can't afford to do them or they haven't been doing enough lending to have a database on which you could build a model. You can, in fact, buy somebody to build your model for not that much money if you had the information. right? And so what they're saying is because we don't have models, we can't cheat on our capital requirements. So it's much more expensive for us to lend in particular areas. And the two they're focused on are mortgage lending and SME lending, which are two areas where the government is supposed to be actively encouraging them to expand their offerings.
1: Now, Jenny, you've had the pleasure to be monitoring a lot of the parliamentary commission sessions on on the banking sector, where this whole idea of competition has cropped up time and again. This development, this news that we've written about today is not going to exactly please Andrew Tyree, who chairs that commission. and um- Assuming.
2: No, it's not. It's a bit of a, a long running theme, isn't it? The calls by parliamentarians for uh the banking sector to open up to, to new entrants so it increased lending. But the background of this is obviously greater regulatory scrutiny on the capital banks, particularly small banks, hold against loans they make. So there's an inherent tension between sort of the idealism on the one hand and the, the realism or fighting the, the last war on the other.
1: Absolutely. And Brooke, is there any suggestion that this can be reconciled, this inherent tension?
2: There's sort of two ways you can look at it. One
0: is you could at least level the playing field by forcing the big banks to stop cheating with their models.
1: Which is definitely, uh, definitely a, a bit the, of a battle that's on the agenda, right?
0: Definitely. and I, And I do think that will at least, at the moment, the difference is as much as seven times as much capital for little banks. Yes. Probably the clampdown on the models might bring it into like two times, which at least the small banks I've talked to think they could compete at that point. The other possibility is in Germany, they actually came up with an idea for this where they got the Sparkassen, which have the advantage of being regional so they don't compete with each other, all pooled their data in order to create one big database. And then they all paid for one model and they all use it. So they have been able to take advantage of models without doing that much lending
1: our resident German expert will surely have a view on this, the Sparkassen model. Well,
3: yeah, I think my view is that it might not be easily transferable because the Sparkassen, they don't they don't necessarily compete with each other, which uh, in the because UK... Because they're regionally based. Right? Yeah, they're regionally based, so they've each one has got its own regional fiefdom yeah. where they can operate in, and they are organised through the Landesbanken and through their uh, Sparkassen Association, they are organised in a way that helps them to, to collaborate, where Whereas I think in a sort of really diverse banking system as as the one in the UK, it might be really difficult to actually to get this sort of cooperation going for for obvious competitive reasons.
0: There is a theory that the one way you could do it is by having the regulators say to everyone, big and small banks, you all put your data into one big database and all your models have to work on that database, which includes everybody's loans.
1: Okay, that sounds like a... (laughs) <laughs> a bureaucratic nightmare waiting to happen. But it, it sounds like also it might fit with the government idea of uh, wanting to centralize lots of things, like the payment council decision last week as well.
0: Definitely. And that, the idea there was that you would do a lot more centralizing of basic banking services, so it would be easier for little players to plug in. Yeah. The other theory, of course, is it would limit the ability to cheat because you couldn't claim that your mortgages were special and therefore didn't need as much capital as everybody else's mortgages.
1: Quite. Finally on that, where where are we going from here? What's the next key development to, to watch out for?
0: The FSA is due to produce a report right before it goes out of existence on regulatory barriers to entry in banking. And this is definitely one of the issues they have to address.
1: When you say about to go out of existence, part of it is being merged with the uh, the Bank of England, which takes effect in April, right? First of April. Yes. Second on the agenda, Jenny, you've been looking at the RBS LIBOR situation The fine of 390 million pounds that RBS agreed to pay last week. We've been waiting for it for weeks and finally it came. Was it a damp squib in the end?
2: To some extent, we'll be able to answer that question later today when Stephen Hester and Philip Hampton are appearing before the Parliamentary Commission. So there could be some fireworks there. Certainly on the day, yes, it was a bit of a damp squib. I mean, this had been well flagged up to the market. Stephen Hester had been warning, I think as long ago as last November, that, that this was coming around February. And of course, the size of the fine itself was never going to be material for the group, but it actually came below the top end of expectations and there was even a small uplift in in the share price or perhaps a sigh of relief from some people there. I mean, what is clear is also that there is not going to be a wholesale management change at the top. Stephen Hester clearly has the support of his board investors, and it would appear implicitly from the government, of course, RBS's biggest shareholder. So for the moment, there must be a sigh of relief at RBS. But as I said later today, there, there could be some more news on that front.
1: So what happens now on the LIBOR story more broadly, Brooke?
2: Well, we know that
0: there are batch more institutions under investigation. Tracy McDermott, who heads the FSA's enforcement arm, has specifically said there are five institutions still under investigation. One of them is the first non-bank, ICAP, the interdealer broker. We also know that both the FSA and the CFTC and U.S. Department of Justice are looking at a broad range of banks. Something like half a dozen have reported receiving subpoenas and tougher discussions. So I think we're looking at months, if not years, more of settlements.
1: Yeah, and the next one may be by the summer. We reckon hard to say
0: hard to say Tracy said don't hold your breath. So I think it's gonna be a while. What's interesting also is right as RBS came out, the Singapore Monetary Authority basically revealed that it is also looking at manipulation of its own rates. And one other thing that was sort of interesting in RBS that was a little bit of a new twist was the utter lack of controls that that bank had even three years into being state-owned. Yes, when R- we
1: saw the UBS settlement, we thought, blimey, this shows that the controls weren't working. Actually, there weren't any controls
2: at RBS.
0: Exactly. <laughs> UBS had four compliance inspections that missed the fact that rapes were being manipulated.
2: RBS never even did compliance. It was March twenty. 20- 2011 before RBS put in place controls to monitor LIBOR. And as late as last year, there was still evidence that some traders were trying to manipulate it for personal gain.
1: I guess the bank had quite a lot on its plate after Stephen Hester took over as chief executive in late 2008, early 2009, which may be why he's got the backing of everybody to stay. They kind of feel sorry for the burden he's had, which you'll see. We should move on to our third topic for the day, which is Barclays' strategy plan. Again, this is long awaited. Ever since Anthony Jenkins came in as chief executive last summer, he's been promising to shake up the bank's strategy That so-called transform plan is going to be unveiled on Tuesday. Uh, We expect it to show cuts of at least two billion pounds. There'll be a couple of thousand job cuts in the investment bank alone and probably several thousand more elsewhere across the group. Daniel, you're braced for this transform plan, ready to go. What what do you expect to see?
3: The main question is how much of a transformation we're really going to see at Barclays. I think uh, what, what we're hearing now is it looks more like it's going to be something that other rivals are doing at the moment as well, which is cutting the cost space reducing capacity and staff in the investment bank and in some of the back office areas group, right? That is what it looks like at the moment. The, the, the plan is to cut at least £2 billion of the £20 billion cost base, which sort of is, you know, 10% cut that's comparable to what other banks are doing, actually. And yes. the same goes for the investment banking cuts, where we've seen, I mean, they are already in the middle of cutting up to 2,000 jobs. I mean, they've started a few weeks ago, and they're expected to be, almost done with the job cuts this week when they're going to announce the new strategy and then i mean that this is sort of in line with you know, if if I think about what what Deutsche Bank Credit Suisse are doing and some of the US banks are doing, maybe not what UBS is doing because they're you know cutting much, much deeper. Well I'm I am think- just
1: gonna say on that point, I mean UBS was the most dramatic that we've seen to date yeah. and they were rewarded with a big uplift in the share price on the day, as everyone yeah. keeps reminding us. Yeah. Looks like that's not gonna be, a- be no. happening about.
3: It. I mean Anthony Jenkins he will have to walk the rope. between he has to give the impression that he's really doing something big and you know, transforming Barclays in the sense that it that it pleases the regulator, that it pleases the public and, and it, given all the reputational issues that Barclays has. But at the same time he's still got a very big investment banking business that, that accounts for more than half of the pre tax profits if, if I look at last year, the past nine months for instance. Yes. So you know he can't just cut deeply into that into parts of his profit base. So no, absolutely. He, you know, even even though the public might want to have the yes. so-called casino banking being slashed.
1: So, what does that mean then for Mr. Jenkins' major watch phrase that ethics is what matters yeah. going forward? That's going to be the filter for everything that they do. Does yeah. that just make him, as some would argue, inside the bank a bit of a laughing stock because he can't deliver what he's promising? Yeah. And either people are going to ignore it, or they just think it's empty rhetoric, yeah. or is it actually is he going to be able to balance those two sides of things?
3: I mean, in a, in a way, he can balance it through sort of s- symbolic acts by cutting in those areas that have been the most contentious. Yeah, really. so the like, tax, you know, the tax structuring yeah. union, for instance, agricultural commodities where, yeah. where they might think about exiting some uh, certain areas, which others haven't, by the way. For instance, Deutsche Bank looked at it and uh, they stopped actually trading for a while and then decided there isn't any relation to any speculation going on. So they decided actually to, to get carry on in. with that. And they probably saw it was profitable. Indeed. (laughs) That must have been the main reason. uh, So so he he gives the public something where he can say, you know, we're going to cut these. But equally, he's not going to cut massively.
1: Okay. Well, we'll watch that, obviously, very closely on Tuesday. The other thing we should mention as we move on to our fourth topic, which is European bank results, which are starting to come through, of course, alongside that Barclays strategy plan, we're going to get Barclays results. Daniel, just give us a reminder of what we're expecting to see on, on that front, but also maybe contextualize it in, in terms of the broader European bank results that we've seen over the past week? We've seen Credit Suisse, we've seen UBS, and before that, Deutsche.
3: I mean, with Barclays, as well as with the other European banks where we already have seen results, the the main difference to the yes banks really is that here in Europe, it's all about exceptionally items in, in in the last year. It's about restructuring, it's about litigation, and it's about the capital base and strengthening the capital base. Those are the main things really the European banks are grappling with Whereas which the...
1: largely the US banks have got over I suppose with the exception of the mortgage issues which yes. obviously dragged down Bank of America particularly in the last uh, yeah. quarter. But...
3: but most of them generally we had more focus of on your operational performance yeah, ongoing and you yeah. know business was coming back in, in some areas and I mean we've seen some of that happening at the European banks as well but it's just simply completely outweighed by all the the litigation restructuring because we've seen Deutsche Bank for instance they had a 2.2 billion above higher than expected loss due to goodwill impairments, due to restructuring costs, and due to litigation uh, provisions, such as provisions for LIBOR. UBS, same story. We had a large loss in the fourth quarter, mainly due to LIBOR costs, but also due to the massive restructuring they're doing by basically winding down most of the fixed income
1: business. Well, as as you say, we've got Barclays coming with... The start of those UK results in the next couple of days, but then we've also got later in the month the other UK banks and the French as well. Yes, which, the French uh, are this week as well. Yeah, yeah. And
3: Barclays, the thing that is going to be interesting with Barclays is on the investment banking side is going to be the, their performance in fixed income because yeah. Deutsche's per- results
1: didn't suggest.
3: Yeah, both Deutsche and Credit Suisse were pretty weak compared to the yeah. S peers, and fixed income for Barclays is the most important business line in the investment bank. So, so yeah. whether they've lost or Gain market share is going to be something investors are going to look out for.
1: Very good. We'll look out for it too. And that's all for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Brooke, Daniel and Jenny for their contributions and to thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Katie Carney. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.